welcome to the In the Money Players podcast. This is our Giving Tuesday special. I promised we were going to have this yesterday, and here it is. Funny time on the shows. Sometimes this time of year gets a little quiet, but not so much this year. I've got a bunch of other people I want to get to and make sure they get on before the end of the year. But one person we always knew we were going to have on this Giving Tuesday. We call her the first lady of the In the Money Players podcast from the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, Kim Weir. Happy holidays, Kim. Happy holidays, Pete. It is so good to be with you and your whole herd on this wonderful day and at this wonderful time of year. We are thankful for you, my friend, and everyone listening today. We'll start with the headline. It is Giving Tuesday. What particular initiatives does the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation have? How can we help in this important cause? Well, thank you. Thank you for that. It is an important day. It's an important day for every charity that everybody cares about. I would say that is that um, for us, we have chosen one very specific um, uh, task, and that is our farrier fund. There's a very beloved old adage that is no hoof, no horse, and it is true. It is true on the racetrack, as we've you know recently see all the time with the horses in training. But it's also true as they get older and they live on those four hooves for the rain, remainder of their days. So we have a fleet of farriers, and I do love my alliteration. That was um, a good one. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And uh, so they are out there. They are the hardest working people you might ever know. If we think our farm managers work hard, you should try bending over a horse's hoof for eight to 10 hours a day. Um, That is what the farriers do. And sometimes those horses are happy to have their little petty done. And sometimes the horses are not so excited about it, but the farriers are among the most gentle souls. They are, they are just really special. They are also very strong. They tend to be very calm, very kind, very quiet. And we are so grateful for them. So today on Giving Tuesday, we are raising the roof on our farrier fund. We're trying to raise $25,000 today in one day in lots of little gifts. Um, And that will help us take care of um, the hooves that are attached to 425 retired racehorses across the country. So that's what we're doing. And we appreciate um, your support, Pete. We appreciate everyone's support. I like to look at Giving Tuesday gifts as a way of saying, I see you, I hear you, and I appreciate you to the people who work at the charities that you know, all of them, not, you know, I'm here to support my horses for sure. But honestly, for me, this is a big day of giving to the causes I care about. And it isn't about the size of the check. It's literally about the making your voice heard with a little, a little something. And it adds up to a lot. So and they use our link. Our, is our link as good as any, the trfinc.org slash players link? Yes, it is as good as any. Um, it is good because you'll just, you just get, you'll go to your page um, and uh, and give the Giving Tuesday button out and that will be really easy to find. I promise. I've got some premiums, Kim. I've got some premiums. Ooh, ooh, so, we love this. Okay. We love this. <laughs> we have, we have some whiskey left. And not only that, that whiskey is going to be shipped this weekend, which means you could potentially get whiskey. We will get whiskey in time for the holidays. Unlike my second premium, which will not be ready in time for the holidays, but is cool and I'll get to that you don't even know about. It's basically last call for a little while on the In the Money whiskey. We've talked about this before. You know, I'm an investor uh, from way back in Albany Distilling Company. I think they're making some incredible stuff. I particularly like their Empire Rye. Well, mm-hmm. we did a barrel pick plus with them a couple of years ago now, 18 months, two years ago now, where we had four-year-old, actually, it's more like two years, isn't it? We had some four-year-old Empire Rye, delicious on its own, and said, hey, let's make this the ultimate New York spirit. Rye, the traditional spirit of New York, that's what your old fashions and Manhattans were made with in the 19th century, with very similar recipes to what they're using at Albany Distilling Company. But we got the idea to take it over the top. 
let's put it four extra months in an apple brandy barrel mm. to make it the most New York spirit it can get. Because, you know, what's more New York than apples? It's delicious. It's kind of like an old fashioned in the bottle. It's but it's serious enough whiskey to drink neat. Um, makes it a good cocktail. I think you have a story about that that I'll, that, that I'll let you share. But anyway, get yours now. Two hundred dollar donation trfinc.org slash players, and we'll send you that as a premium. I've got a, a, a less expensive option we'll get to, but I want to hear the story about the bottle you, you busted open at Thanksgiving. Oh, my gosh. Well, yes, you were very much with us for the holidays, Pete. We are thankful for you. You were being given thanks for, in general, as a friend and a colleague and an ambassador for our herd, but also because you made some darn good rye <laughs> that was the perfect aperitif to our turkey meal at Casa Weir. And our good friend, Elisa Maresca, who has definitely done her time as a bar tender down there in Brooklyn. Um, she whipped up the most lovely Manhattan for us using the ITM rye. And it was, it was absolutely perfect. It was the perfect kickoff to our um, repast on Thanksgiving. So you were with us. We raised a glass to you. And then we had the chance to tell the story of everyone, like being the, everyone that you had inspired because you had this great idea and then you did it for the horses. I just love those kinds of stories. So thank you for offering up this wonderful premium so that my elves and I will be um, packing up some, um, and then we send it to you. Other premium I have. So and this ties into some of the other stories and we got to actually, gosh, we, we, we got to, we got to get going. We've got, we've got a, a very interesting guest in, in the waiting room. So we do not have a ton of time. Okay, to okay. Get this, but we're going to bang. And the, the, here's the new premium. So old smoke, Clothing.com is making their first foray with JK into formal wear okay? with these fully customizable jackets you can find over there. So as a result of this, I, I'm a completist. I decided they do have one tie. They have the JK numbered saddle cloths as a tie. Okay. I decided for my other customizable jackets that I'm going to get, I was going to make my own tie. Uh-huh. One of them is a tie with the basically a version of the ITM logo, a green, the green and black and white version of the ITM logo, small on a tie. That's going to be one. And then the other is going to be, and I don't know, I may get myself, as long as we're getting ourselves into trouble on the show, <laughs> there may be a copyright issue with this too. It is, it's basically the blue checks of the secretariat silks. Cause I want to do the blue jacket customized with the, the blue checked secretariat lining Anyway, you can't, as it turns out, Kim, you can't just get one tie made. You got to get 30. So oh. I just need one of these. So I've got 29 ties. Now, they're not going to be here till after the holidays. So this is not a holiday gift. That's okay. This is be ready for the, for the spring racing season. We'll be ready. We'll be ready in our finery for sure. For that one, $50 donation. If you can give a $50 donation here on this Giving Tuesday, Ooh. I will give you. You take your pick of one of those ties, and I'll and I'll send it to you. If you want both, uh, give a hundred. Mention something about the ties so we can track this. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my that's my new offer for you today. And I know you've got some other, and I think one of them is actually Old Smoke related. Yes, uh, to talk about as well. Yeah, no, this is well. That is so awesome, Pete. Thank you so much, and thank you to Old Smoke, and thank you to JK, and the whole the whole darn ITM team is so awesome. I love that. I can't wait to see these two guys because what I will tell everyone while being quick is that if you happen to be wearing gear that is in any way vaguely associated with uh, the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, I will stalk you down across a bar and we will start talking. It has happened. It will happen again, and now I can be looking out for these ties and the black jackets. So that's exciting for me as an extrovert. Um, so I love that. And so just be sure, yes, givers to the ITM, um, TRF dot, trfinc.org slash players. If you give any of these gifts, please put in 
in the money, uh, you know, make sure you, we know which thing you want, the tie the, uh, for 50 or more or the whiskey, because that helps us. But I want to say on the on the old smoke thing, and this is a little bit more of me jumping to my next appearance if I get another one this year, it is just to think about holiday shopping because that's what we've all been doing all weekend. And just to mention that at the bottom of our page, at the bottom of Pete's page, the trfinc.org slash players, you can scroll down to our store. And I do want to just say, please take a look at our um, things you can buy that also help the herd. And they're all in the same vein as that beautiful tie and the whiskey. Um, we have a bunch of partners who've created beautiful and wonderful wonderful things. And that's everything you're going to see in the store right now is created by some other partner for with us in mind, not, you know, for us, but they are selling. It's the Old Smoke team. It's a great group called Blinkers Off, which is like much more casual t-shirt kind of wear. It's our friends um, who've done the Penny Scarf, which also has pocket squares. Um, and then it's our friend Chris Carpenter with the, the long shot book for all the little ones on your Christmas list. But I would just say, as you're doing your shopping, your online stuff, take a look at our store because all those things are layer. They all get shipped directly to you from the, the vendor, but we get a little piece of the action and, and finish with the fact that our friends at Lazy Dog, of course, love it when you buy those horse biscuits for all the four hooved friends on your Christmas or holiday list. Where's the best place to find the store? It is at the bottom of our webpage. Every single page, you'll find the shop at the bottom of the page on every page. So you will find it there. That's um, great. That's, that's great. terrific. Great, great. Uh, you mentioned before about stories about people, yes. you know, inspiring and, and sending ambassadors out there into the world. Glad you mentioned Chris Carpenter, by the way, because he, I got to make a mental note. We're, we're booking him right now for our uh, opening day of baseball special oh, for next year. It's awesome. a long we'll do to have him on. And, oh. and I love the fact that he's involved with you guys. I, I, I was a big uh, fan of Chris Carpenter as a player. Great. But, uh, speaking of ambassadors, I know there's one who's particularly had some uh, recent success on the racetrack as a, as a West Point partner that yes. he's been willing to 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 share. What can you tell us about Steve Moskowitz? No, oh, Steve Moskowitz is he he is he is following in the Pete Fornital, Jonathan Kinchin, uh, and Ver, many others. He's a horse player. If you know any of those people, he's a horse player who has let the horses take root in his heart. And that is what I would say about Steve Moskowitz. So he, he is the kind of guy I would, you know, when you chat with him, he'll talk about going to Aqueduct with his father, all of his childhood memories, playing the ponies. He's got the accent, which I can't imitate. And he just loves the game, loves it, loves it, loves it. Here's he, he and I cross paths happily enough at the TRF barbecue at the barn. It's a little preemptive plug for next summer. We met at that barbecue in 2021. He loved everyone he met. He walked up to me like my favorite kind of guest. And he said, Kim, I love this. I love the people that are here. I love the vibe of this party. And I am, I am inspired to care about these horses. I really never thought about it. I've played the ponies my whole life. I really never thought about what happened after. And this is not an unusual story. I'm so grateful to Steve for like saying it out loud because then I could just loop arms with him and bring him into the herd. And now what he's doing, punchline, he's found his voice and he has quite a voice. Um, and he has decided to use that voice and say, I care about horse racing. I love horse racing and I care about these horses and I care about aftercare. So he's now sending out targeted emails, just pretty shameless. Shamelessly, and he, it, it's, there's no shame involved. He says, I care about this. And if you if, like me or you like things I care about, I, I would ask you to give a gift. He's going straight up. He's like saying, please give. The man has already raised over $20,000 this year and he's barely gotten started. So it isn't about the quantity, but his sincerity and his passion is something I want to celebrate. I want to say thank you, Steve Moskowitz. I want to say thank you, Pete Pornatel. I want to say thank you, JK, for inspiring all those many folks out there who may find, hey, Here's something I'm good at. I'm just going to do that 
and maybe it'll help the horses. And that is magic and a great gift that I'm thankful for. Very, very admirable. And it sounds like he's a real New Yorker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he loves his Buffalo Bulls, too, by the way. I've learned this about him recently. So, <laughs> Pretty funny. All right. Before you go, we hopefully will have you again. But this is a time of year I do like to mention for our tax planners out yes. there. Yes. That there are some other clever, potentially beneficial ways to make donations, whether it's uh, stocks um, I'll let you give yeah. a proper pitch on this in the minute we have left. Okay. Well, thank you, Steve. All right, Steve, I'm thinking Steve, thank you, Pete and Steve. Um, who's, um, the, the key is that yes, there are non-cash giving strategies, which, you know, for all of us who live our lives in cash and credit cards, uh, it's nice to do something that doesn't just add to the bill. And that is if you have an appreciated asset of some sort, which could easily be stock, that's what we mostly have, but it can be mutual funds. Think about it as appreciated assets where you get a stock and it, or you get in a statement, it says your value has increased those things can be given directly to the to the charity of your choice and to the TRF without selling it so that you do not incur the capital gains on any um, gain that you've accomplished in the year. So you just transfer it to us. This is all on our website on the how to, how to Give page. You can also just contact me. And the beauty of it is it transfers to us at the full value. We get the full value um, and you get a tax receipt for having done that, but you do not incur the tax that is um, would have otherwise been achieved if you've sold the stock. So it's a great way and I can talk about it much more eloquently. Um, and there is a great page that I can send people with all this information. And thank you for bringing it up. Because at the end of the year, when you're tired of putting yeah. things on your credit card or pulling on your bank account, think about this. If you have something you'd like to pass on a couple shares, they go a long way for the TRF. Kim, K-I-M, at T-R-F-I-N-C dot org. That is my easiest way to be reached. Great stuff. Well, Kim, we'll hopefully have thank you, you back one more time before the end of the year, but wanted to thank you for coming on on this Giving Tuesday. And uh, we've got a, a great guest waiting for us in the green room, and, and we're going to get to that next up on the show. A guest I've been eager to talk to for some time because he's got an experience that I think when shared, you're not going to help but be able to learn something about racing, given his background. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the comments that, uh, that that went a little bit viral via a recent article in Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. But I just want to start off by saying hello and welcome to Jack Gilligan. Jack, how are things? I'm doing well, Pete. Thank you for having me on. How is your time going? Now, you were here in the States for, for many years. You've been back in uh, in Newmarket now for, gosh, is it is it is it going on a month? Uh, how, how's, the, how's the transition back home been? It's been really good, actually. Um, yeah, I say, yeah, I've been been in America for a long time and hadn't had many opportunities to come back and visit home really since my time in America. So it's been good to get back and catch up with the family um, and get back here to Newmarket, where I'm where I'm born and raised, and and get out here back on Newmarket Heath. It's been great and uh, a lot of fun, just reconnecting with old friends and family, really. A couple of my favorite days in racing have happened on those gallops it's such a magical place but i got really really lucky a few years ago when walking around with uh with, with john berry who i had the pleasure of working the with sky sports racing from time to time and we happened to see sir mark prescott on the gallops 
and got to spend just a half hour with him walking around and talking about horses and what a character, what uh, a figure in the sport. I know you had the the pleasure of uh, growing up under his tutelage in many ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was, I was apprenticed to him for about a year and a half after I left school and the time before I came to America. And and then I'm back now. I'm, I'm riding a lot for him at the moment. Uh you know, day to day, uh, two days a week going in there and working horses for him. So yeah, he's the best. He has such, such great stories and he, the way he talks and articulates everything is so like, like I say, he's just a great storyteller and he's a great kind of entertainer as well. Um, so yeah, no, you're very lucky to have experienced that. I wish everyone could get a chance to. <laughs> I was going to ask you, and I don't, I think the answer is no, but is there any U S equivalent to 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 a fellow like him, does anything come to mind? And how do we explain to the USA audience about his background? That is a good question. I'm trying to think if I can think of anyone off the top of my head. I mean, there are I mean there are a lot of great characters really in their own different ways. One that jumps at me might not be the same as Mark, but Dallas Stewart. I always love hanging out with him or, you know, being around him. He's, he's always feel like he was probably really destined for Hollywood, Dallas Stewart in another <laughs> life. Um, just, you know, his, his persona and, and the way he talks and his atmosphere around him. Like yeah. he's, he's a big character. I feel like I uh, get that. I uh, definitely get that. That, <laughs> that natural charisma, right? Exactly. When, when you talk to somebody and you just get the feeling like they're doing what they were born to do. I get that both from Sir Mark and from uh, and from a guy like Dallas Stewart. Yeah, for but, sure. <laughs> yeah, so he's one that jumps at me for sure. But I'm, I'm, I'd have to think a little harder. But I'm sure there's plenty of others in there that, that, that definitely would get up to his level for sure. I'd love to hear about your apprenticeship a little bit more and some of the lessons you were able to learn from, because you do grow up in a, in a, in a racing milieu. It's not like you were coming at this from the outside, but I still have to feel like you, you learned some different perspectives in during that apprenticeship. Oh yeah, for sure. I say, um, you know, I was lucky enough that my, my parents were both involved in the sport, you know, from before I was born. So I, I had every advantage of growing up literally in a racing stable um, day to day. And then, so obviously the ins and outs and learning how to, you know, being a horseman generally, I definitely learned most of that from my family um, and the riding part. But then once I became apprentice to Mark, that he had that whole next level of, you know, real, you know, working with your parents and stuff like that. And especially, you know, my dad only had a smaller stable. It's a lot different to working in a very large you know, large stable that is obviously got such a history as Marks does. So, you know, it was learning that whole next level of standards as far as, you know, presentation and, you know, really discipline as well. You know, you just were scared to ever show up late or you were scared to, you know, not have the horse turned out beautiful or, you know, you every it just really drilled into me a lot of um, punctuality and gave me, I guess, um a real knowledge and how to be performed to a high standard and everything I do. Um, and then as far as the horsemanship, just obviously, you know, getting on some different types of horses, you know, my dad only had a few, so getting on multiple different horses all the time. Um, and then obviously just being surrounded by good, really, you know, talented horsemen, you know, uh, there's, a, you know, a few old people that are still working there, actually like Colin Nutter. He's been a smart since I think he was 16 or 17. He's probably nearly 70 now um so he's been around there for a long time and like just you know being surrounded by great horsemen it, it kind of rubs off you on you and it, you know it just it teaches you to up your game so that was the biggest thing there really and uh 
I think definitely molded me into, you know, a good rider, you know. Your reputation, in addition to being a good rider, and obviously you have the success to show for it with, you know, 400 winners, uh, etc. but also this idea of being able to communicate well with, with the horsemen and, and be able to give trainers like actionable advice, something you were, something you were known for here. I would imagine some of that had to come from, from working with uh, Smark as well. Oh yes, absolutely. That's what I mean. It's, it's just, you know, like I say, it's just kind of being surrounded by, you know, the older generation, you know, and, and learning how they speak, how they articulate things. Um, when it comes to horse, you know, that's just stuff that you just pick up on. And obviously at that age, you know, 16, 17, my, my mind was like a sponge back then. So, uh, you know, a lot of it luckily went in. And uh, so, yeah, you know, I'm definitely so thankful for that uh, and having that opportunity to be, you know, working there and be, a, you know, take advantage of all that knowledge. When I think of your time in the States, I, I feel very much that you can't talk about your time here without talking about your, your relationship with, with Silver Dust. Was yeah. the, was, was, were those rides, in fact, some of your highlights as a jockey over here? And, and how was Silver Dust as a mount? Oh, absolutely. You know, I've, I've talked about him many a day. He's, uh, he was a dream horse, really. Um, obviously, you know, I, I got lucky enough that Brett Calhoun started using me there. I believe it was all like in 2018. And got really lucky with him, you know, put me on some nice horses pretty much from the get-go and we had a lot of success and Silver Dust is kind of a bit of a troublesome horse a lot of his career and a bit temperamental as Tappets are and um, I was lucky enough, I, I just got to work him one morning and uh, I got along really well with him and Brett saw that and, you know, thankfully he kept me on him then and we ended up doing really well together. You know, we won those couple of great stakes and unfortunately the one, he, he well, I think he won... We won two, and then the third greatest stake, he ended up getting disqualified in, um, unfortunately for a, for a bad test, and uh, and then obviously I had my injury side. But the time I did get to be on him, it was great. You know, obviously winning my first ever greatest stakes winner was something really special, and down at the fairgrounds made it even more special because I, I I loved riding down there, um, and yeah, just you know it was fun taking me around. I remember we went up and won the West Virginia Derby. Um, by my standards was running that day also trained by Brett Calhoun and Chester Thomas is the owner uh, of him and he took us up there in his private jet so my first time ever in a private jet and you know like flew up there go we both win I won the governor's stakes and then by my stand won the West Virginia Derby and then we flew back that evening went out to dinner in Louisville and just you know cool stuff like that you know those, those good horses take you on those amazing trips and give you great memories like that so no it was awesome and yeah, he was my buddy. I, I used to work him every week for, you know, nearly two years. And so it was it was cool, you know, just to build that sort of relationship with a horse and then for him to pay me back by giving me some, some of my best days in racing. That's great. Is that something that can be a learned skill, that idea of getting along with a difficult horse, or is it more, sometimes I feel like from afar, you'll just notice certain jockeys who get along with certain horses, almost like it's a connection that is either there or it isn't. But yeah am i right about that or is it something yeah for sure i mean because that's I me mean, there's definitely horses that i just haven't got along with at all you know I, I don't think it's necessarily that you have to be a good horseman to get on to get along with a certain horse i think it's just it's almost like a personality match or something right. that you know some people just get along with certain horses and might not get along with others and that person the other person that might not got along with the horses you can they get along with the horses that you can't and um, you know, I think of a lot of it is learned, you know, it does take a level of skill to, 
to sort of understand the horse and, and learn how to, you know, do some of them need a, a slightly firmer hand? Do some of them need to be reassured? Do some of them need to be, you know, just try and get them to re- relax or, or whatever it may be? Um, you know, I think that definitely comes with experience is kind of picking up those signs as, as quick as you can. But yeah, like it is interesting. I've noticed that as well, you know, because that's I mean, I've been like some horses I just cannot get along with and I see someone else going on and they're just like buttering their hands. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, so um but yeah, no, I said that's definitely a good point, and uh, I'd I'd have to agree with you that it's it kind of depends on the jockey and the horse. So there's definitely, I think, there's a certain jockeys fit certain horses, for sure. One thing I wanted to ask you about that I thought you'd have a great perspective on something I've been critical about U.S. racing for for a long time is the way that the the scale of weights works, and I think there was part of this, and we should give the author uh, credit where credit is due because certainly the Graham Dench piece in in the TRC. This is one of the reasons why I, I you know, thought to to reach out to you today, and, and and I think this idea might come from there that that part of your decision to to move back abroad has to do with with the scale of weights and what you can ride at over there versus here. I, I want to talk to you about, you know, why you think the U.S. If I'm right about that, first of all, and then why you think the U.S. has the the scale of weights that it does, and if we wouldn't be better off with with a little bit more liberal of a system that allowed the jockeys to eat once in a while. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, you're exactly right. Um, it's you know, it's a lot different over there than it is here. Um, it is, I've never understood it really. Uh, you know, I spent nine years in America, and the weights never really changed at all my whole time there. They slightly did. They used to be the maidens, and the two year olds used to be 116 pounds. Now the minimum's about 118 pounds, pretty much everywhere you go. Um, but still, you know, I'd say half, nearly half the card every day the horses you know the weight they have to carry is is 118 pounds and that includes you know your saddle your girth and etc um and and obviously your clothes it doesn't include your body protector in a lot of states some states they do but not many anymore i don't believe um and not your silks whereas in england you do weigh with your body protector and your silks um but in 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 in, sorry in england they give you a four pound weight allowance now for your safety equipment so even if the weight is published at say, um, say like nine stone, uh, if we do it on stone over here, so nine stone is 126 pounds. When you step on the scale of all your equipment in England, if your horse has got 126 pounds or nine stone, you actually have to be nine stone four or 130 pounds. So, and obviously, a lot of times your your safe your body protection and your silks aren't going to weigh four pounds usually. Right. So you're kind of getting extra two pounds lenience as well, and a lot of that is. Just people over here are a lot bigger um, as far as, you know, in America, a lot of riders are from South America um, or Hispanic. And uh, so they're just naturally a bit smaller build, a lot of them. Um, and so it hasn't really been as much of an issue, I don't think, in America yet. Um, whereas over here, a lot of them are just, you know, regular white guys. And uh, so it's I think it's just been more of a pressing matter here. You know, I've, when I've since I've come back here, I'm like below average height whereas in america i was like there's only like two or three other jockeys that are taller than me in america so if there's a huge contrast so i think it's kind of been in america it hasn't been such a pressing subject for a lot of the jockeys um i think most jockeys do have to work at their weight in america uh from my experience being around them like most of them have to you know lose weight in some capacity most days um uh but you know that's I mean they're just they're stronger athletes I, f- I feel like a lot of the spanish riders they're very muscular um but yeah as i say you know people like myself and you know 
Keith Asmussen, he's about my height, maybe a touch bit taller. You know, he's just starting out. He has the bug and stuff like that. So I can't imagine how he's doing it. And it's, uh, that's me. It's just for these tall, the taller people that aren't meant to be 114, 115 pounds stripped. It's, it's pretty tough. And I wish they would put it up a bit because, like I say, the rest of the world is a lot higher weights, you know, nearly, nearly 10 pounds, like I say. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really understand the case against more leniency. In yeah, direction. It's and of course it's one of these things that's hard in USA racing with all the different jurisdictions. It's not like mm. you know, there's no commissioner's office to go and get this thing uh, changed with. But it is something that I think. I mean, obviously, Heisa probably have their hands full with other things, but it does seem like maybe a pretty simple way to improve people's lives. And oh yeah. Yeah, given how hard your guys' lives are anyway. I mean, I want to talk to you about injuries and specifically how injuries relate to mental health, but I think the scale of weights relates oh, to mental yeah. health. And, stuff and as that's well. what I mean, going back to your question, I mean, really that is what kind of broke me in the end was, you know, just the day in, day out, you know, just having to just lose a lot of weight. You know, I'd, I've, I've got a, you know, a, well, it was uh, Apple Watches, so I'd record all my runs during the week, and I was doing 26 miles a week. So I was running a marathon every week yeah. in a sweatsuit, and two days a week I literally wouldn't hardly – I'd have a protein bar and an orange, uh, and, like, you know, I'd only eat one meal a day the rest of the time. So it's, like, it, it's fine, and it's – you know, you can get through And I didn't feel that bad, actually, but it's just – it is just a mental battle always, you know, and if you're feeling sore, you start, you know, getting muscle sore. So then when you're running, you're kind of sore doing it. And it's like, it's, it does get the better of you eventually. And that's, I mean, I was happy how long I was able to do it for in America. But I say, I always knew it was going to end up being a deciding factor for me there was the way it was going to catch up with me. So I'm happy I managed to last as long as I did. Um, But yeah, like I say, it would like people like me and, you know, you know, a few of the taller jockeys, I'm sure, would definitely appreciate it, the way it's been raised a little bit. Um, and I think there is some movement towards that now, especially I've noticed there are a lot of, like, you know, the jockeys are getting given um, a lot of uh, surveys and stuff, you know, through HISA and through other programs, like um, University of Kentucky are doing quite a lot as well. And, you know, a lot of that stuff, you know, it's asking about our diets, asking about how we're feeling, you know, would we like things to be changed, this and that, but, you know, like anonymous surveys they give us. So they're starting to, like, at least want to gather information to get the, you know, general kind of feeling from the jockeys. So hopefully there will be movement in, in a direction sometime soon. So it might not be there yet, but I think it's probably in the pipeline. From my That's, good. That's good to hear. And it's something that, you know, maybe we'll continue to talk about on, on shows like this and, and help to create some awareness. Another tough thing, and this is the case, obviously, anywhere you're riding horses, but, you know, injuries and specifically head injuries, I worry, you know, as that's become something that's such a huge deal. I don't know how much of an American football fan you became while you were over oh, here. Oh, but- huge, huge, okay. huge hate fan. <laughs> so the you see it now, the awareness of this stuff. But, I mean, you know, what we – when we when I first heard about CTE, okay, so like whatever it was, twenty years ago now, mm-hmm. and I remember an offhand line that made me worry about some of my jockey pals that they were talking about the emergence of CTE and brain scans that previously had only been you know the type of brain damage over time that had only been seen in a handful of jump jockeys. Yeah, I was like, yeah. uh oh, <laughs> like that. It just it made me worry, but I feel like it's CTE specifically 
you know, the, 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 the basically the brain disease that can come from having too many concussions. Mm-hmm. I feel like we talk about it too much over here. And yet if you're you in the saddle, I mean, it must be a major concern, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's been, you know, I've, I've had quite a few bad head injuries in my career and, and it is definitely something that, you know, scared me for a long time. Luckily, my last one, I finally got diagnosed correctly. And my f- first couple, um, car went undiagnosed and I returned to riding quickly and then I had to get another one. And, and that's where the problem begins is, you know, where you get repetitive concussions. Um, luckily, mine, I kind of managed to get get my recovery done, um, you know, uh, I had ended up having a year off due to it, um, but it was the best thing I could have ever done because I, I definitely wasn't quite right and I didn't realize it. And you know, part of that reason is they, at the time in America, they they didn't really have any protocols. You know, they didn't have a concussion tests or, you know, if the doctors cleared you at the hospital in the emergency room, which most of them do, if you if you're not gonna die, they they want you out there because right, it's a triage they system. They, they don't want to. You know, yeah, and and they don't. Twenty years from now, they're worried about the guy bleeding in the stretcher in the hallway. Exactly, you know, which is fair, and and that's what I mean. They're not isn't their, not job, their job to go and refer us to a specialist because they just you know they're not one. They don't have the time, and so it was only once I kind of went and looked for myself to get specialist help. I went to um, Tulane Institute of Sports Medicine, which actually do a lot of work with NFL players. And um, that's when I finally got my diagnosis. And they were like, you know, they see my history and they ran a bunch of results to me. And they're like, yo, you're, you're messed up. You need to stop because if you get any more head injuries in the near future, you could really, you know, do some irreversible damage. Um, and so luckily at the time I was only 20 i think i was 24 so he said if any age before 26 usually your brain actually is quite capable of healing itself pretty well but it needs time time to heal i.e if you're stressing about weight or if you're riding races and doing this and being excessively busy or excessively working your mind hard um it, it isn't in the correct state to heal so you need to get into a relaxate so i ended up taking a year off um and basically, yeah, not doing much. And I, at the time, I didn't think I was going to return to racing because I didn't see much um, improvement in my balance and in my cognitive skills. But after about eight months, it started to progress. And anyway, so then I was able to get back racing. But yeah, going back to your point, um, so that's kind of my story. And that's my sort of experience with it. And, and I say I wish there could have been protocols back when I first, you know, had some of my bad head injuries. Um, but again, that is something that's starting to change now. Uh, University of Kentucky is doing a lot of work with that and they've set up and, and along with HISA, uh, they've set up, uh, you know, a generalized baseline for all jockeys now. And they're also at the UK, um, at University of Kentucky, they're doing a, um, it's called Graham test. It's kind of been developed by James Graham and it's kind of meant to help replicate a little bit better being on the back of a horse without being on the back of a horse. So that basically, have you ever seen those, um, the bozo, like the yoga balls, the half ones where you can yep. stand on them? Yep. So they'll set that up and they'll set up these sensors all around you that have lights on them. So you'll stand on it in your jockey position. So that will kind of help test your balance. And then you, it'll set up a, you know, a, a different selection of lights that you have to try and touch in a specific time. And so they've 
been doing that over the last couple of years with us now and developed it so that could be a baseline so where we all get tested on that and they'll get our average of what our balance is like and what our reaction time is on that. Um, and then whenever there's an injury or whenever there's a fall or suspected concussion, we can run that exact same test, which is a little bit better than the current system. They use the SCAT-5, which they can't use for anyone, but it's like standing and it's not like in a similar position that we right. would be in as a jockey. And so it kind of this way it'd be a bit more accurate discovering a discrepancy in you know in in our base compared to our baseline. Um, so yeah, that's what I mean. Again, same thing with weight. There's definitely progression. It's just you know, it, like I say, with American racing, it, it's it's getting there. It's just a bit behind a lot of other countries. You know, in England, this stuff was you know I remember doing concussion tests and all that stuff when I was an apprentice back here in twenty. 12 2013 mm-hmm. um you know only that stuff's coming into play now so it's it's great that it's all going in the right direction um you know it's a shame that it, it wasn't implemented earlier because the technology was there and it was you know known about and was being practiced in other countries so it's it's kind of a shame for everyone that came before that you know might have you know had injuries that could have been prevented because of that because of that kind of i guess lack of uh you know, initiation into trying to progress the sport, you know. Um, but like well, I said, luckily enough, it's happening now. It's a matter of practicality when you've got 32 different jurisdictions with 32 yeah. different sets of rules. It's hard to make changes like this. You know, you, you can't do them. You couldn't do them in the old days unilaterally. Hopefully, these new systems are going to lead to some some better results because I've got to think that particularly the two things we've just been talking about, the, the weights and the, the head injury stuff. I mean, that's got to be significant reasons why in your profession, you know, you have a lot of negative mental health outcomes. Yeah. That, you know, I don't want to get too, uh, too personal unless, unless you want to. Uh, but, you know, I certainly see, and I, I think it's impossible to be a fan of the sport in the U S and not at least be a little bit of uh, concerned with the, with, with the mental health aspect of oh, yeah. being up there in, in, in the saddle. Is it something you have, personal experience with you know what what else could be done better yeah i mean i think every jockey goes through dark times it's definitely been highlighted more so over here and talked about a lot more in england um you know whether it's social media abuse or you know just you know the disappointments of you know working hard and getting taken off of horses and you know in the jockey's opinion a lot of time we might feel hard done by and we're like don't feel like we deserve that and it's like you know when you and then you throw in like say having to lose weight and you know there's so many factors you know I always say being a jockey a lot of it is very it's more of a mental game a lot of times that you don't really realize that on the face of things you don't think it's that hard mentally or you know it isn't as taxing but it is very much so and and that's something that a lot of people don't see from the outside or you don't even know going into it that it's going to be that hard and that you have to kind of you know you just have to kind of try and dig deep and and not let it get to you but yeah there's you know there's there's plenty of um jockeys that I think go through a lot of tough times I say myself included I've gone through tough times but it's kind of those things I think it's just unfortunately that's just the nature of the game is you know you are gonna get taken off of horses you are gonna be given disappointments you know you are gonna mess up in a race and you know that feeling of damn I could have won that race and you know just that huge fear and disappointment because like I say you have a lot of people rely on you it's a high pressure sport you know you have the trainer 
all the hours that the trainer's putting into a horse, all the money the owner's put into the horse, and it's down to you in those, you know, minute or two to to get it all right. And, you know, you could just make a split second decision wrong and everyone's mad at you and you feel like the world's crumbling around you. And it's it's tough to kind of overcome those things. But, you know, again, I think there is a lot more being done. Like I say, I've noticed a lot in these surveys they've been putting out to us um, when I was riding there that, you know, would ask us a lot about our mental state, you know, how are you feeling, you know, like, and, and uh, uh, you know, go into a bit more detail of that stuff. And it's so, as I mean, I think there's going to be stuff getting set up soon enough now that's going to create a support system like there is in other countries like in Europe here. Because, um, again, like I say they, they get a bad, a lot of jockey. I, I think, well, I, I'd say they get quite a lot of social abuse, uh, social media abuse over here. And so that's, I mean, it's getting kind of addressed now and there's a support system being put in place for it. Um, and like I say, I think obviously a lot of jockeys get it as well in America. So it's, it would definitely be a good thing as well if they can start to implement some sort of support system for jockeys, somewhere to turn to. Yeah. And it does sound like, it does sound like improvements have, have been made. I have another question that sort of has to do with the mental side of the game, but not on, not on such a, on such a serious level, more on an, a, an effective day to day level. It feels to me, look, all athletes go through streaks, of course, but I feel like with jockeys, sometimes it can be like the runs, the, the runs of form for a jockey, I think sometimes are, are, are more extreme. And and mm. I don't know if that's to do with mental state, if that's to do with, physical injury if that's to do with with preparation i mean do you think i might be right about that and and what are the things that contribute to a good run of form for a jockey as opposed to when when you might be struggling definitely confidence confidence is everything like it's so funny how you know if you're winning races and you kind of you feel you you get that feeling that you're on fire you know you'll just start horses that just like should not win will just start winning for you and you know it's just you just just start making the right decisions so naturally it's a weird feeling to be in it's hard to describe but any jockey sounds like flow state yeah it's like done any reading about flow state and you know that concept i guess the very common way to refer to is like being in the zone where things are happening and you don't even know that they're happening and you're just you you, you don't feel time passing i mean there's there's a lot of ways it's been described but that's what it sounds like you're talking yeah absolutely and that's i mean like a lot of jockeys if they're listening would have been in that position will know exactly what it feels and then the same turn of coin if you go for a bit of a rough patch or you haven't had a winner for a couple of weeks and then next minute you get a good opportunity sometimes that just doesn't come off you know it's just like and it's sometimes you still even ride a good race and it's just the horse doesn't win it's just like i think also maybe sometimes the horses feed off you you know they are very that makes you know, sense they, they they can definitely sense how you feel and that's why i think also why some horses that don't win that shouldn't win do end up winning is because like you're going out there you give them a pat and you're like come on boy like we got this you know just because you've been winning everything anyways you're not even looking up at the tote board and seeing that you're 40 to one and then other times then you're like you haven't won a race in a couple of weeks and you're on a you know favorite or something like that and then you're like oh shit i need to win this race like i need to win this race and then the horse probably feels that you're tense and that you're not you know confident and so it's uh you know it's definitely you're exactly right with that and and i completely agree with the flow state feeling and uh, i think that's definitely a big factor and why you know it is interesting i say how you know some joys get on a roll and then the hardest thing in the world is just to stay on that roll you know there's only a few that can keep it up but it's uh it's definitely a good feeling when you get into the groove like it 
is there anything in your experience that be, can be done to encourage getting into that kind of mental state, whether it's a, a routine out, at the track, outside of the track, or does it just come and go and it's mysterious to you? I think it can definitely, I think a lot of it is obviously circumstance. You know, you need that. It kind of comes from the ground up. You need to, to have the business to get you going in that flow, so, you know, get on the roll and then you need a good agent to help keep you on it. Um, and then obviously you need yourself to be able to keep performing correctly and, and handle that position, like pressure and position while you're on it. But also I think outside of that, you know, I went and saw, I was spent a couple of years with a sports psychologist. So I'd see every couple of weeks and, you know, she'd teach me a lot about, you know, pre-race visualization um, and just sort of, you know, learning how to control, you know, breathing exercises, a lot of things to help, you know, control yourself and just like plan forward into the race of it. You know, if anything does go wrong in the race, you're kind of prepared for it and you can take it in your stride and that kind of helps build your confidence overall. Another confidence exercise, there's a, there's, um, uh, oh, there's a great book I read as well. I can't think of it right now. I might have to add it in later if I can find no, it. But um, it's a great, when it's a, you think of it, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, definitely do. Um, it's a great, 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 great sports psychology book. It's only a real short read and it goes over four points and it's, you know, a lot of it's self-talk as well, you know, which is yep. a big problem when you're low in confidence, you start thinking in your head, but you can't do it. And then obviously when you're in high on confidence, you think you can do it, but you can trick your mind into feeling that you can do it, even if you're in a low. And um, yeah, there's just, there's, there's a lot of exercises and things you can do, I think, to help improve that. Um, but obviously you need the results really to give you that sort of that validation, I guess, that gives you that real deep confidence that is just unwavering. On the gambling side it's, it's actually some very interesting things i wouldn't have necessarily expected that are similar it sounds like between riding these horses and gambling on them and and one thing that i have talked to a lot of professional players about is the idea of preparing yourself to a good mental state like if you've done enough work you know the confidence can just come now obviously the kind of work that you do is different you mentioned the idea of you know obviously another big thing is a jockey agent and the relationship that you have there. Cause I mean, in a way it's their job to, to help you prepare. I was just curious to talk to you specifically about preparation, how much you, know, when you're doing that visualization, how much of that is based on you studying the form and knowing it, how much is based on information you get, whether it's from an agent or, or, or a trainer. Mm. I'd like to hear more about that. So, I mean, really, like I say with, with the visualization, a lot of it would be sort of, pre-race so just before your specific race especially if you're riding multiple races you do it just before each of your races um and yeah a lot of it would be based on the knowledge of your own horse how it likes to run sort of your little idea in your mind how you'd like it to go and then obviously studying the form of the other horses you can kind of like think about how the whole race is going to pan out and yeah you'd kind of um i'd kind of you know close my eyes get into my breathing routine and try and just practice from literally moment of like imagine myself getting on the horse in the paddock doing the warm-up going into the gates and like planning on my perfect break and where i'd like to be in the position of the race and the interesting thing which was highlighted in the book is a lot of times when people do this a lot of things will go wrong it's like your mind automatically jumps to all the the, when you're thinking your mind will 
automatically think like, oh, the horse is going to stumble leaving the gate, and then oh, I'm at, I'm on the back foot now, and this. But in a way, it's also good that you go through those scenarios as well in your head. So I'd run through the race many a times, and a lot of times it would kind of like subconsciously divert to like something wrong going, like I go for this gap and it doesn't work out. And then you kind of like go pick up from that point and try and think, okay, well, if that happens, I'm going to do this or on this. And so the idea is that when you go out there, you're kind of already mentally prepared for any scenario that could yeah. pan out. And whenever anything does happen, because I say in horse racing, there's a million things that can go wrong and most of them do go wrong a lot of times. It's very, <laughs> very rare. It goes as smooth as you'd want it to go. Um, so that you're, you know, you're a bit more prepared and you can, you can take it all in your stride and not then make another mistake off the back of that. Um, and I mean, with agents, there's definitely some agents that, uh, I guess are a bit more involved than others. You know, there's some that just purely focus on, you know, getting your mounts, you know, setting up your workers, doing all that. And then you do get some that are a bit more involved as far as like trying to help you, like as far as like tactically and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that just kind of just depends on the agent really. Um, but yeah, like, you know, most of them, most of them, you know, they're focused on just trying to get you on the horses and, and, and get you, you know, your morning workers and everything like that set up, just more the business side of things. I would guess that it's one of the biggest differences between riding here and riding there, the, the primacy and importance of an agent. Over there, you've got your relationships with, uh, you know, Sir Mark and uh, the, some of the other yeah. trainers mentioned in the article, uh, Ollie Sangster being one that I, I remember thinking, oh, that's cool that... that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you're hooked up with Ali because it seems like somebody with a with, with a future. I've had yeah, definitely, he's definitely got a bright future. So I mean, but the agent, it feels like an agent can really. I mean, my observation as a gambler, and you tell me if I'm nuts, but it feels like in a lot of times with a journeyman rider in the states, an agent can make you or break you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, there's definitely better agents than others, and I, I've had plenty of experiences with with all of them, really good to the bad. <laughs> um and yeah they really can you know they can there's just some that are just really just work their butt off and then there's some that maybe don't work as hard but then they got you know they do have a few trains they have good relationships with they can get you in there so it's kind of you know it's a bit of a toss-up sometimes because sometimes the really hungry ones the ones that really are like super aggressive of like just hustling 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 sometimes they end up burning bridges for trainers and stuff like that and then they end up biting you in the butt and then you get ones that are a bit more political and try and keep everyone happy, but they they can't be as kind of pushy and as aggressive as far as trying to get you on horses or, you know, switching you around and stuff like that. So there's, they, they definitely got their different styles for sure. And, um, you know, it's kind of always seems it comes hand in hand. You, you need a good agent to get you going. Um, but then, like, so once you get going, you kind of need an agent that, can keep the peace and you know like you know top top riders you know you think of Irad, uh, Irad and Jose and Joe Rosado and uh, Luis Saez you know they're at the point where they could ride pretty much any horse in every race they wanted to you know they're just in demand you know the owners and trainers want them so that then switches to those kinds of agents need to be very heads up with you know picking the right horse and then also just being keeping things politically okay that as far as like, okay, well, Louis could ride, you know, this horse in this race, uh, you know, for Brad Cox, but 
then someone else wants him in this race that might have a better horse than Brad Cox's in it. But if I take him off it, is Brad going to get mad at us for yeah. the horses next week? So it's, <laughs> it is, it turns into a very kind of almost political game, I, I feel like, a lot of times. And it is hard when you do get in demand because you always end up seeming to to piss off someone, you know, at some point. <laughs> so it's, it is tricky. And that's where, you know, those good agents can just somehow you know smooth it all over and and keep keep the business coming and try not to burn any bridges i think it's also knowing the big picture i think you made a key point about the agent at that stage getting you on the right horses and you sai as a good example this is a point stolen from my friend uh, sean clancy i don't want to say that this is original but noticing in particular at saratoga when when Saez would turn up on a first time starter that wasn't um an obvious logical place for him to be, that was, you know, Kieran McLaughlin or someone who works yeah. with Kieran, finding a live first time starter and then finding a way to get the guy, get, get Saez on it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot that goes into that. And between that and then, you know, just choosing when you've got two live mounts in the same race, balancing the politics against the win. And there's a lot that goes into it. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just wasn't sure how, you know, how involved in your career were you at, at, at making those decisions versus just trusting your agent? <sighs> It depends. I towards the later part of my career, I kind of enjoyed having a bit more, I guess, control as far as like you know deciding who I wanted to ride for, who I didn't want to ride for, and you know just you know picking my own horse. I did kind of enjoy that a bit more but when I was younger and and you know riding a bit more, you know having five six races a day, you know I just kind of you know I just put trust in the agents and 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 hoped that they made the right decision but they would still when it would be a tough one you know so for example a horse that maybe I've been working a lot um and you know maybe something else would pop up in that same race that maybe look better on form or something you know they'd check me and say hey Jack like you know how is that horse working like his last work before its race like how did it go like because you know they can vary like you know, if it ran four weeks ago and ran good, but ever since that run, it's been kind of working a bit eh, below where it usually would. You know, only I know that, you know, or, you know, I'd, I'd know that from riding it and being like comparing it to before. And I could be like, well, he isn't actually working very good recently. He hasn't come out at race like as good as he was going into it. This other horse might be a better play, actually, if it's on form better and, and vice versa. You know, sometimes, you know, your horse is like come out of a race and working better than ever. And it's like, nah, like this, I believe in this horse, you know, that other horse might look better on numbers, but, you know, this horse is really doing good right now. So, yeah, they, they'll definitely touch base with you on certain tough decisions and, and they'll, you know, especially just ask as well, especially if you're close with a couple of trainers in particular, they'll be like, look, Jack, I can't well put you onto this other horse, but I know you have a good relationship with this trainer. Like, do you think it's going to burn a bridge? You know, do you mind if I do this? And so, yeah, most of them are really good about communicating um, and, you know, trying to, you know keep you happy as well as a as a jockey because you know obviously they're working for you so they want to make sure they do a good job too i want to talk to you about the uh some of the the statements that the controversial statements we'll say that came yeah <laughs> that came out of the article because it sounded well you know i was going to ask you and you said off air to me that there were some things that you wanted to uh wanted to clarify as well yeah i'll i'll, I'll start with one and then you can take this conversation everywhere it goes but when sure. you say buzzed up i assume you're talking about keyed up on the toes i think other people took buzzed up to mean something else anyway yeah what did yeah, you mean that, that's, that's, that was a large up. consensus i saw in the comments was i'm not sure if people thought i meant they were drugged up or or what it was but no we in in europe we say buzzed up meaning you know the horse is kind of a bit hyperactive a little bit excitable 
you know, say on its toes, like you say. Um, and, you know, what I was trying to get at that point was, you know, horses in America have obviously trained on the racetrack where a lot of times we're racing. So yeah, a lot of times they're kind of going out there and they just got the juices flowing because they, they're just, you know, they're used to racing there. They're used to, you know, they're, they're breezing there as well. Whereas in Europe, you know, a lot of times where, where we take them to, to canter or do their just day-to-day gallop will be a different track to where we breeze them. And then obviously both of those places are completely different to the actual racetrack where they'll go race at. So they, like horses over here, get used to being a bit more relaxed. Whereas in America, they don't know if they're going out there to breeze or if they're just going out there to jog or if they're going out there to gallop or if they're going out there to race. You know, it's all the same kind of environment for them so that's what i mean the point i try to make was it's just a bit more nicer riding horses that relax a bit better over yeah. here but it's kind of not really the horse's fault per se or it's not the trainer's fault per se in america it's just a product of the environment of where they have to train at i do wonder though if there aren't some things look we're never going to turn racetrack training into the fair hill training center or yeah but the idea that there could be more things you know whether it's a a different synthetic training surface or i don't know do do you think in your opinion there are some things we could do in training at racetracks to that that would allow horses to feel a a little bit more like horses and and maybe mitigate some of the concerns that you're describing and it's i feel like it'd be hard i think they have a similar problem in i've never been to australia um, but my good friend Benjamin Rabelard, he spent a couple of years out there and he said the horses were very similar to in America as far as they were keyed up and buzzed up and they, you know, were really strong to can- canter and gallop. You know, they were a handful similar to over here. They don't tend to relax. And, and that's the other tricky thing as well. You know, if you do get one that does relax for you, then sometimes you'll have a pair of breezes, you know, breeze right past you. And then it kind of your horse get takes off again, you know. So it's, I think it's gonna be very hard to ever fully mitigate that in America, um, you know. As regards to the services, you know, I've 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 always, I'd never really liked the dirt racing since I got there. I mean, I didn't know I didn't like it till I got there, but it's it's definitely as far as safety for the horse. I believe it'd be better to switch to synthetic. Um, you know, just especially since coming back here, it's so funny. Like we we've had so much, we had a lot of rain recently, and it's just so nice being able to just go and you know you can still breeze. You know, you don't have to switch yeah. up your breeze days because the whole because the track's sloppy, and you know it's just it feels a lot nice to kind of go over when you're on the back of the horse. It doesn't feel as taxing on the horse as far as they don't get as tired. And then obviously with the dirt, you know, the dirt can be safe, I believe, um, but in perfect conditions and it's so hard to make it a fresh track for every single horse that goes over it. it's so hard to make it have the perfect amount of moisture in it it's so hard to you know just you know create that perfect scenario for it to be safe uh and that's the good thing about synthetic is it can be safe in in most variables you can have 10 horses breeze over it in front of you and you're not having to run into divots or it can be below freezing temperatures or it could be a lot of rain um, and it will still perform the same. So that's why I always feel like the synthetic's a little bit better as it has a lot more advantages um, as far as, you know, product for keeping the horse, to, to be able to train the horse in the most optical, optimal, safe way, I believe. My dream scenario would be that you have the three surfaces, honestly. Synthetic to me as a training surface is an absolute no-brainer. 
I also like the idea of being able to contest some of the, you know, racing up to a certain class level, maybe on synthetic. Yeah. And you keep dirt racing, maybe to me could become almost specialized like turf where it's where you see the best. Yeah. Because uh, that's you like that idea. Yeah. I, I um, you know, I think it's going to be so hard to to see the Kentucky Derby run on synthetic. Yeah. You know, that uh, doesn't, that doesn't sit right with me. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the Breeders' Cup dirt mile and you know, you know, so, and that's, I mean, I I think given the perfect scenario, the dirt can perform well. And, you know, a lot of times when I'm riding in the afternoons, uh, you know, say at Churchill, which obviously had its problems earlier in the year with its dirt track and horses getting injured. I think a lot of it is, a lot of the reasons things go wrong on race day isn't necessarily the conditions on race day. I believe a lot of it is leading up to it as far as training, you know, uh, you know, same thing with Saratoga. I think they had a lot of rain there this summer um, in Saratoga, but a lot of the times when the horse get injured, it wasn't on a sloppy track, but I'm sure they were probably training on sloppy tracks most days, you know, whether even it's just galloping. And I think it's just, that's what I mean. You're, on race day, it's been perfectly harrowed. It's a dead fresh track for all the horses on it. It's, you know, they've made it consistent. Whereas, you know, you're training in the morning. If, if you're going out third set, there could have been a couple hundred horses going over the track before you. So, you're, you know, your horse's car going. And if there's a horse's footprint, you know, there's obviously going to be thousands of them going around there as far as footprints. You know, when they step into one of those, it's, it's kind of an inconsistent step always. It's not a dead flat surface. And I, I think that's where a lot of the you know issues come from in in my opinion anyways because that's i mean i'll feel i'll be breezing horses in the morning around church or when i'm like it feels like the horse is gonna fall down on me because they're hitting so many divots and stuff and then yeah, i'll race that awesome. same afternoon and my, my horse will go there, around there really smooth and feel great so that that's in my opinion that's and, and so that's why i agree i feel like if it's like you know you if you're able to have the free surfaces a service to train on and you could even run all the races on the dirt, and I think it would can't. I think it definitely lessen a lot of the issues, and then it kind of keeps everyone happy as far as the people want to keep the dirt. You're still racing on it. You're still, you know what I mean. Um, you're still keeping that history if they, if that's what they're feeling so strongly about is is regards to wanting to keep it. But maybe training on it might help. You know, improve things. There's an answer. There's an answer out there. And, and you know, I, I think that we're, we're, we're circling around it and obviously talking to people uh, who th- th- there's a lot of other people whose opinions I'd love to get. But I I'd love to hear the answer. I'd love to hear the case against having synth surfaces for training. I mean, other than money, yeah. which is, you know, when when yeah. we're dealing with safety, human and equine, you know, the money should be besides the point. It's this Absolutely. is the direction I feel like in terms of training we should be heading. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it's the duty of the racetracks to to try and create the safest product possible. Because, like I say, at the end of the day, it it only hurts the sport because of public perception and and stuff like that. You know, um, it, a little bit of investment in the future goes a long way, I believe, and cutting corners short term. All right, I got this. Is the toughest question of the interview? <laughs> Eddie, <laughs> buckle your seatbelt. Buckle in. If if you had it to do over again, w- would you have said the line that, that appeared in the article uh, comparing day to day racing at time? You said at times, but to what one of the deadliest battles of World War One? <laughs> it, it felt so. It, like I say some of those lines in there it might have been taken a bit out of context. Although okay. I do, I do, I did say all those things, and I do stand behind them. 
Um, like I say, I'd like to definitely officially say that like I say, I spoke to him for about 40 minutes, the the journalist, and I, I did say those things, but I felt like I did say some nice things as well about American racing and the trainers and everyone like that. But going back to the question, yeah, it, it did feel like um, like that sometimes. You know, when I was younger and I hadn't gone through any injuries or anything, you kind of feel a bit invincible. Um, but you have a few injuries and it, it just isn't a nice feeling when you're going around there and you've got one that feels a bit off, but you kind of, you feel like you have to go out there and work it anyways and you have to kind of go through it because otherwise you, you get labelled as scared and then you that gets spread around and then you lose business and no one wants to touch you because they're like, oh, he's scared, you know, he don't he's too scared to ride and stuff like that, which is a, I don't like that mentality, but it's, you know, it's kind of just the way it is. A lot of jockeys, I believe, feel the same way. And it's, yeah, it would feel like it is, uh, the, the reason I use that word was, you know, the soldiers going over the trenches, you know, it was just luck, isn't it? It's just, yeah. maybe I'm going to eat it today, maybe not. And it's kind of those things, you're going around there and you're breezing, you know, a bunch of horses four or five days a week, you know, you're getting on a lot. And I'm not saying all of them felt bad at all. Most of them felt good. Um, but you would get a few that you didn't quite trust and you're going around there and you're like, which step is going to, is it going to happen? And it's just not a nice feeling to be that way. I mean, touch wood, I really only had, you know, a handful of horses break down badly with me in my career. And that's over the course of 4,000 breeze, you know, 4,000 races and probably equally or maybe more breezes in the morning. So it's very low number that it ever happened. Um, but it's just what it seems, especially like I say, once you had a few injuries and you kind of get that perspective of like, why am I doing this? Like, you know, why am I risking my neck? And, you know, doing a job that's, you know, super hard and really there's no safety net. If I get injured, you know, what's going to happen? You know, am I going to be able to pay my bills? No one, you know, a lot of people, you know, that's one of the things people used to say to me. They said, like, make sure you look after a lot of their older jockeys. You say, like, look after yourself, Jack, because no one's going to come bring you flowers in the hospital, you know, if you go down on one. And it's it's not entirely true. Like, when I did have my injuries, I did have a lot of people uh you know show care you know what like had concerns care for me for sure but it is kind of those things is you know they they just expect you to go out there and do it and we all do you know i mean it's not a job but that's the point i was trying to make was it can just get a bit it can get to you eventually that feeling of like you know is it you know when's when's my time up here when's it going to go bad again or when's an issue going to happen and uh, and that was a point I tried to make when talking about why it's nice over here is a lot of the horses feel really great. And I say, I think a lot of it is down to the training surface. We're all on synthetic here. And so it's just a nice relief and a nice feeling to be here. And it just, it just doesn't even cross your mind. Whereas well, the, a lot of days of contact for, for me, the key bit of context you provided there about the quotas you were talking, you know, on top of, the, the mental side of it you're bringing in and talking about how you're dealing mm. with all these other difficulties that we outlined earlier in this interview. And then on top of that, you're dealing with this. I, now I understand the quote. Now I get yeah. it in a way yeah. that it's, you know, yeah. it's still, it's still disturbing. It's still, it's obviously a very worrisome thing, but I get what you're saying a lot more when you're talking about your mentality that you're and that very specific analogy about the Psalm and trench warfare. It, it starts to make sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I, mean, I didn't articulate it quite, correctly when i first put it out there but um that's why i was you know and like i say the whole 
overall quote of the thing was was the good eventually the the bad sorry eventually outweighed the good and that's what it was it was a few of these different factors over time have just kind of you know wore me out with with the racing in America and it's it kind of you know I just was fed up with it I was fed up with feeling that way I was fed up with having to reduce so hard and, and worry about my weight so much and um it was kind of you know that's mean I was like well I can come here to England and and give it a shot and it, you know there's so many upsides to coming here like I say friends and family most most importantly um and then on top of that you know, I'll be able to enjoy my riding a bit more, which I have. It has been like, you know, it's coming, getting a bit cold over here now, but I'm I'm loving it at the moment. And it's... Yeah, I was going to ask if you were missing the weather. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like I say, it would be nice to be, go down south about this time. But um, no, that's what I mean. Like, so it's just been, it, you know, when I wrote it all down, the positives and negatives, it was tight. But a few of the things that have become a bit more important to me in my life have kind of created England to be a bit more of something I want to explore and try and um you know if if all it can do is ex, you know extend my career by a few more years and that's great and if I can get back in touch with my family that's amazing and um you know uh obviously it's it's kind of just nice getting back to my roots and, and riding riding my say these horses that are kind of a bit more enjoyable to ride you know it's you're not having to wrestle with them and they you know you can't can go around there with a and not having to worry about you know things like I was so it's it's just that was kind of really the top and bottom of it really that's why I was trying to put put across in the in the article the other quote I have to ask you about specifically though probably the most disturbing one and I mean I'm sorry to say but I'm I have no doubt that this is accurate but it is awfully disturbing and it's not something people talk about the idea that you might tell a trainer something is wrong with a horse but they keep going with it anyway how <laughs> common of an experience was that for you is that something you think is still going on what are some steps that could be taken to you know to try to make make it so that that doesn't happen because that's the exact kind of thing that could really lead to the demise of the sport in America, where our social license to operate is already under such scrutiny. Yes. Well, it was definitely a small percentage. Um, I'd say... I don't know how I could put it in percentage, percentage terms. There's, you know, there's certain people, there's certain trains out there that I have ridden for in the past, but like I say, I, I would avoid riding now as I've gotten older and stuff and that's I mean you would have times where you'd breeze a horse and you didn't know it didn't feel right and you'd kind of you know put across your point saying oh I think he's a you know a bit sore here or something like that and they'd look at him and you'd still be you know they'd still enter it for the following week and right. you know you'd go and have to ride it and it just isn't a nice feeling when you kind of haven't got the confidence going into the race you know um and yeah, so it's happened, and like I say, I'm not saying this is every trainer out there. For sure, it's not. You know, uh, it's interesting on the on one of the comments and post someone put up a a, uh, a like a data sheet of all the trainers that I've ridden most for, and I'd say nearly all of them uh, uh, I loved riding for. I mean, absolutely love. You know, Michelle Lovell, Phil Sims, William Walden, uh, a few others. There's you know John Ennis and 
uh, who I've been around a lot for recently, and uh, Sarah Hamilton. And there's just, I mean, there's been hundreds over the course of my career that I've ridden for that are great trainers, and they do listen, you know, to feedback, and they do do right by the horse, and they prioritize the horse more than anything. Um, but like you say, there are a few out there that, you know, if they know it's going the wrong way, they're going to throw it in there to try and get it claimed and, and then it's not their problem. And it's kind of, that's been a problem mostly more so in the past. And like I say a lot of these new rules come into play, such as the void claim rule, which is definitely a great thing that they've implemented it because it discourages trainers from running a horse that might not be perfectly sound just to get, you know, to take for someone else to take it off their hands. It kind of negates that. Um, and, you know, just obviously the, the, you know, the vets are being a lot tighter on things. I mean, you saw at Breeze Cup, a lot of scratches and stuff like that. And that's me, you know, scratch a lot of European horses as well. Yep. And so, yeah, there's, there's definitely, like I say, overall America is going in the right direction for sure. I have no doubt. Um, and like I say, there's definitely a lot of people I know in the sport that are just really wanting it to see it thrive and grow. Um, I go shout out my boy Corey Barbarito here. He's he was assistant Dallas Stewart for many years, and he's just gone, and he's starting to work corporate side down there in first racing at Gulfstream. And oh, nice. yeah, and he's really pushing. He really wants to try and work his way up the ranks and and create some change for the sport because he loves it and he has so many great ideas for progressing the sport. And so I hope I hope he really you know keeps going the direction he's going. So that's I mean there's people all around the sport wanting change for the right reasons. Like you said, there's been a few people, mostly in the past, I feel like. I feel like a lot of them have been turned away from the sport now. And even if they are still in the sport, I think they're changing their ways as well now as far as, like, trying to do the right thing. So, that's what I mean. Much-needed context right there. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean. I, I, let's say I was a bit annoyed because I felt like I explained myself a little bit better when I first made the article. Um but it didn't come across obviously in the article. So I don't blame people for being mad. It did seem like a big attack on people. And, you know, obviously if you probably looked at the last, if you go on Equibase and look at my last two years of riding, probably every single trainer on that, I'd say, I'd almost say with certainty now, actually, every single trainer on the last two years of my riding I've ridden for is an absolute straight shooter. And I loved riding for, and you know, they loved the horses and they did right by the horse. So, you know, sort of some that con some that line was really just the outline of my career and, and you know, from stuff in the past really. We only have just a minute left here, but I did want to give you a chance. You mentioned that you'd said some other positive things about racing in the States that didn't make it into the article. Well, you've covered some of it already, but if there was something else along those lines you wanted to get on the record, let's give you a shot to do that before I let you get back to work. Well, really, I say I just like to reiterate, you know, the you know some of the younger people in the sport wanting to move it forward, and you know, I think maybe it might just be a good thing. Everything's coming together now. It might be a bit of a change in regards. Some of the older people, you know, from the top down, you know, a lot of it comes from you know right up, you know, the the CEOs and the all the executives there on the racetrack side of things. They need new blood coming into that, giving new ideas. We got Hissa coming in. Um, you know, obviously it's been a bit of a toothing problem with it coming in, but hopefully that will get worked out. Um, and yeah, I think it's just going to take a lot of people banding together and the right people banding together. And I'm sure it's going to be just fine. The great thing about American racing, it has got a great purse structure. It's a good product. Um, 
you know, I don't think it has been a good product, but I think it's moving in the direction to become a good product and be on par or anywhere else in the world. Um, but it just takes a bit of change and people to, you know, really push for it now. Jack, really appreciate you taking the time out today. And as I say to a new guest, no good deed goes unpunished around here. We'll be bothering you again soon to oh, talk more back. about your life and career and what comes next. I, I feel like we're just getting started, but we've hit the hour, so it's time to wrap. You guys, gone fast. Waves. Thank you very much for having me on, Peter. Really appreciate it. Cheers, my friend. Bye-bye. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. Thanks to Kim and thanks to Jack. Really enjoyed both of those conversations. Just a heads up, we're going to have some YouTube-only content where we've got uh, me and Caitlin Free and Eric Solomon reviewing that first, not the first, the second of the Derby Future Pool Wagers, the first of the first and only of the Derby Sire Wagers. Find that on YouTube. Leave us a comment on YouTube letting us know what you think the value of the first pool was. There are a couple of uh, decent answers to that question, I think. Thanks once again to the TRF, also our other founding partner, 10 Strike Racing. You know how around here we always love to root for the purple and black. But most of all, want to thank all of you, the listeners, for making this show so much fun to do, especially those of you who sign up for our free email in themoneypodcast.com slash email. That's the best place to get all the content in one place that we're working on here, as well as some other cool exclusive stuff. And our plus people, most of all. That is a terrific way to support us and help us uh, pay some people, frankly, and uh, keep things, uh, keep the lights on over here in themoneypodcast.com slash plus exclusive podcasts, other content, little digests of all the shows, as well as our Derby and Breeders' Cup packages available in themoneypodcast.com slash plus. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatel. May you win all your photos. <laughs>